you take your Bibles and open them to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're continuing our study of 1 Peter as we began a few weeks ago. And I'll begin this morning by reading our text for us, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Will you follow along as I read our text? Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We live in a day where churches all across America are trying to induce worship of God in people. Walk into a seeker-sensitive megachurch today and you'll see all kinds of things that the leadership of that church are doing to try and get people to worship God. Turn the lights out. Turn on the fog machines. The flashy lights. Crank up the music. And then invite people to worship. All of these things are done to try and get people to worship God. Make sure the volume is up. Make sure the music is emotional and passionate. And make sure you set the mood, the atmosphere. Give them a good time. Stir up their emotions and they'll come back next week. Ready to worship. But what the leaders of these seeker-sensitive churches don't understand is that what is actually missing in their churches is true worship of God. A.W. Tozer in his book, Whatever Happened to Worship, said this, quote, Because worship is largely missing, do you know what we are doing? We're doing our best to sew up that rent veil in the temple. We use artificial means to try to induce some kind of worship. I think the devil in hell must be laughing. And I think God must be grieving. For there is no fear of God before our eyes. End quote. Tozer is right. Tozer is right. There are many so-called churches out there who are using artificial means to try and induce what they call worship of God. Listen to what one Hillsong graduate said. He said, you need a space or a trigger, something that will elicit an emotional and spiritual response. 
They want to stir the people up with the lights and, and the loud music and use artificial means to try and induce some kind of worship. But is that what we need to fuel our worship of God? Do these artificial means, many of which are mixed with heretical lyrics, by the way, does that equate to worship? The answer is no. How do I know? Well, let me remind you of two men who love to worship God. Two men who worship not with flashy lights and loud rock music. Two men who did worship in a dark place, but only because it was nighttime and they're locked up in prison, being persecuted for their faith. Who are these two men? Paul and Silas. In Acts chapter 16, after being beaten and thrown into prison, their feet were fastened in the stocks of the prison. And Acts 16.25 tells us, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Paul and Silas, in the midst of persecution, broke out with praise to God. Worship was in their heart, and it flowed out of their mouth as they began to sing hymns of praise to God in the midst of their troubles. They didn't need some kind of atmosphere to induce worship in their hearts. In fact, if you think about the atmosphere, what kind of atmosphere was that? They're locked up in chains. Guards bring in the, the lights and the, the loud music. We need, we need that to worship God. No, you don't. They just break out in worship in the midst of their hardships. Charles Spurgeon said this, all places are places of worship to a Christian. Wherever he is, he ought to be in a worshiping frame of mind. I wonder how many people would stay in these churches if we turned on all the lights and turned down the music. You see, as believers, we don't need artificial means to worship our God. We don't need to set the mood or create some atmosphere of praise and worship. In fact, in, in true worship of God, we need the right motivation. We need the right fuel of our praise to God. And this morning, as we look at 1 Peter 1 and verse 3, we're going to see Peter tell us what that great motivation is. What that fuel is of our worship. Peter is going to tell us about the great salvation that you and I have been given. And how that should cause our hearts to burst forth. And praise. No matter where you're at, 
No matter what you are going through, if you remember the great salvation that you have been given, that should motivate and fuel your heart to worship God. Now, remember who Peter is writing to. Peter's writing to believers who are going through persecution in their lives. Great trials, great tribulations. Nero has blamed the Christians for the fires in Rome, and these believers are scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, and they're under tremendous persecution. And if you think about it, if we knew of someone who was going through a difficult trial, we would probably write a letter to this person to sympathize with them. Maybe let them know it's all going to be okay. Encourage them. Remind them that they're going to get through the difficult trial that they're going through. But notice what Peter says in verse 3. After his opening salutation, he says this in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. After reminding them that they are chosen aliens here on this earth. That earth is not their home, but heaven is. Peter gives praise to God. And he uses a distinct Christian confession of praise here in verse 3. In fact, Paul uses the exact same phrase in 2 Corinthians 1.3 and in Ephesians 1.3. The exact same phrase. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a phrase that is used to evoke praise to God. Now, does Peter know of the persecution that these believers are going through? Yes, he knows. He understands. But what does he urge these believers to do in the midst of it? To bless the Lord. To worship the Lord. To give praise and adoration to God and to God alone. Oh, but Peter, don't you know what kind of hardships we're going through? Yes, I, I know all about those. And, and I'll get there. I'm going to get there. But first, what you need to do in the midst of your difficult circumstances is to praise the Lord. Why? Well, I'll get to that in just a minute. But first notice what Peter says there in verse 3. He says, blessed be. That word blessed in the Greek is eulogetos, from which we get our English word eulogy. And it means to speak well of, and it indicates praise. To give praise, to speak well of. And what Peter is doing here is he's calling these scattered believers who are under persecution to praise God. Bless God. Speak well of Him. 
One commentator says about this word bless, quote, whenever men bless God, they declare that he, in his infinite excellence, is infinitely praiseworthy and express their celebration of what he is and does, end quote. We're to praise God for who He is and what He has done. And Peter here is not only giving a doxology of praise to God Himself as he's writing this letter to these persecuted believers, but he's also calling these believers to give praise to God in the midst of their difficult trials. You see, you you don't need sympathy in times of trouble. You don't need a shoulder to cry on in the times of tribulation. Not that those are bad or wrong. They have their place. But Peter knows that what these persecuted believers need to be reminded of first and foremost during these difficult times is to praise God. To worship Him. To lift your hearts upwards. To turn your eyes to heaven instead of looking out at all the troubles around you. To fix your mind on things above instead of on things in this world. That's where your heart needs to go. That's where your mind needs to go as you worship. We must praise and worship our God. Notice Peter doesn't just say, bless God. He tells us who this God is. Notice what he says there again in verse 3. Peter tells us that we are to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is this God? He's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, in relation to the incarnate Christ, His incarnation According to his human nature, God is his God. And he is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is in relation to the deity of Christ, God is his Father. In fact, you remember what Jesus said to Mary Magdalene in the garden after his resurrection? In John chapter 20 and verse 17, Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Now, to say that God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is new to a Jewish mind, which Peter is, right? Peter's a Jew as he's writing this. This is new to a Jewish mind. Peter, obviously being a Jew, he knows how the Jews referred to God. And for the Jews, when they would bless God, they would say this, Blessed be God, the Creator and Redeemer from Egypt. He was the God who redeemed the Israelites from Egypt. That's how the Jews related to God. The Jews also never called God their father. 
They never identified God as my father. In fact, remember what the Jews wanted to do to Jesus because he called God his father? John chapter 5 and verse 18 says this, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Why? Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus said that God was his father. And he was equal with the father. As he even said in John 10.31, I and the Father are one. And so when Peter says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is giving a new covenant or a Christian identity to God that would be new to a Jewish mind. Many of which those in whom Peter is writing to are Jews. He's writing to both Jews and Gentiles who are scattered abroad. But he is God and he is Father. And in relation to Jesus and his deity, God is his Father and he is the Son. And that's important for us to know. You see, whenever we see God called Father, although he is our Father, we must remember that primarily he is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Which means that Jesus is God. It's declaring his deity. And notice how Peter identifies Jesus here. He says, Our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, first of all, that he, he does not say the Lord, but he says what? Our Lord. Our Lord. Peter unites himself with these scattered believers and says that Jesus Christ is our Lord. We all belong to Him. We are united to Him as believers. And therefore, because we're united with the Lord, we're also united with the Father, right? Jesus said in John 8, 19, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. If you know the Son, then you know the Father. But if you don't know the Son, you don't know the Father. You see, that's the Jews, even today, who deny Christ. They think that they know the one true God. They don't know Him. Why don't they know Him? Because they don't know the Son. They've denied Christ. And so they don't know the Father. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. No one. Not even the Jews. You can't get to the Father except through the Son. You must believe in Christ. You see, when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, we come to know the Father. Notice that Peter also calls Jesus Lord. He calls Him Lord. 
If you remember from Philippians 2, Lord is also the name that's given to Christ by the Father. It is the name that is above all other names, right? He is Lord, which means He's our Master. He's our King, and therefore is the one we gladly give obedience to, which we talked about last week. We've been saved to do what? To obey Jesus Christ. To obey Him. He's our Lord. And so Peter is calling these persecuted believers to give worship and praise and adoration to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the midst of your trial and your tribulation and your troubles, what must you do? Worship Him. Praise Him. Adore Him. Lift your hearts up and bless Him. Now what's interesting here is that in the Greek, verses 3 through 12 are one long sentence. It's one long sentence as if Peter just couldn't stop writing. He just keeps going and going and going. If you like run-on sentences, you'll love these verses here. But all of these verses here are governed by this opening phrase of a call to give praise unto God. Verses 3 through 12 are all governed by this call, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's calling these persecuted believers to worship God. And then Peter tells us why. He tells us what God has done and why they should give Him praise. And so as we look at verses 3-5, through we're going to see Peter describe salvation for us and the benefits that we receive because of this great gift of salvation. And as he tells us of this great salvation, we're going to see five reasons why we should praise God. Five reasons why you and I should praise God. Let's look at reason number one. Reason number one, we should praise God because He is merciful. We should praise God because He is merciful. Look again at verse 3. Peter says, who according to His great mercy. Stop right there. You see, in salvation, you and I have been shown mercy. The mercy of God should motivate us to worship Him. It should fuel us. That is what should draw us into worship of God. His mercy. A.W. Pink said of God's mercy, For this perfection of the divine character, God is greatly to be praised. Mercy is an attribute of God. It's one of His divine perfections. And it comes from His nature. It's who He is. God is a merciful God. And because He is a merciful God, He is worthy to be praised. Now, what is mercy? What is mercy? Well, in a simple definition, we could say that mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Mercy is not getting 
what you do deserve. We all deserve what? Hell. Eternal hell. And condemnation. We all deserve it. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And every single one of us has earned that. We deserve it. But by God's mercy, He saves us from that. We get something that we don't deserve. It's God's mercy. One Greek dictionary defines it as kindness or concern expressed for someone in need. That's a good definition. Kindness or concern expressed for someone in need. And implied in mercy is that someone is wretched and pitiful and in desperate need, right? In fact, remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18? The Pharisee comes to the temple to pray, and listen to what the Pharisee says. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Pharisee. It's a man who has no clue that he is in desperate need of anything. No clue. He thinks he's good. He doesn't think he has a need. It's a man who's so prideful and full of self that he is completely oblivious to the fact that he is a wretched, sinful man in need of salvation. But then the tax collector responds. What does he say? Luke 18, 13. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's a man who is desperate and recognizes his great need. He gets it. He understands. It's a man who realizes that he deserves nothing but hell and condemnation. Why? Because he is not just a sinner, but he says, I am the sinner. That's who I am. He's desperate and deplorable, and he recognizes that he has nothing to bring, nothing to offer. He's a sinner. And all he can do is fall down at the mercy of God and pray that God saves him. What does Jesus say happens to that man? That man went to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. That man went home saved that day. Not the Pharisee, but the wretched, sinful tax collector. He was shown mercy. He did not get what he deserved as a sinner. He was a man in need of salvation, and that need was met by God's mercy. The Pharisee got what he deserved, but not the tax collector, because he was shown mercy. You see, mercy presupposes that we are sinners. Did you get that? 
Mercy presupposes that we are sinners. Our sin has separated us from the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ that Peter's talking about here. The one in whom we are to praise. And listen, because God is a holy God, He has every right to punish every sinner for their sin. Every one of us. He is holy and He is righteous and He is a just judge and He has every right to punish every one of us for our sin. And He's completely just in doing that. He owes nothing to anyone. And He can judge every one of us for the sin that we have committed against Him. You see, there are a lot of people out there, including many people who sit in the pews of our churches who have no clue about the holiness of God. They think that God is just some nice guy up in the sky who's just going to overlook all of their sin when they die. In fact, yesterday I was sharing the gospel with the bug guy who came by the house. And I asked him, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven or hell? He said, heaven. I said, why? Well, because I'm a good person. I've done a lot of good things, and I think that God would let me in because I've done a lot of good things. How does he see God? Just a nice guy up in the sky who's just going to welcome him in. He said, how good do you have to be to get in? There are a lot of people who don't understand the holiness of God. They think that they're going to be able to appease God because of the good that they have done. But they don't understand how holy our God is. That all have sinned against a holy God and that all of us are deserving of eternal punishment in hell forever. But Peter understands that. Peter understands that the only way that you and I can be saved from this holy God is to fall down at His throne and beg for mercy. Peter knows that God will answer that prayer and that by His mercy, not because of anything that we do, but all because of His mercy, He saves sinners. And we've been shown mercy in His salvation of us, right? As those who are His children, we have been shown mercy, which is enough to draw our hearts up into heaven in worship and praise of Him. We just think about God's mercy. Now, we have to understand that mercy is not some kind of emotion of God. It's not an emotion. But God's mercy is shown by an action that God does. It's His very nature. And He shows that mercy by action. By what He does. And what did God do when He poured out His, mer his mercy upon us? He saved us, right? He saved us. 
That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2.4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. God did the action. God acted out of His nature, out of who He is, a merciful God. And it's by the mercy of God that our dead hearts were made alive. He did that work. We did nothing to make our hearts born again, spiritually alive. God showed His mercy to us by taking our filthy, wretched, dead, sinful hearts and cleansing them and making them alive so that we could be restored to Him and live in His presence forever. God did that. God acted. And He acted in showing us mercy. And it is God's mercy that is the foundation of our forgiveness. God's mercy is the very foundation of our forgiveness. God, being a merciful God, takes our sins and remembers them no more. In fact, listen to Hebrews 8.12. It says, For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In God's act of mercy, He takes desperate sinners like us who are in need of forgiveness from our sins and He forgives us and He remembers our sins no more as far as the east is from the west. So God removes all of our sin and He remembers it no more. Why does He do that? Because He's a merciful God. He does it out of His mercy. And what should be our response to that? To worship, right? To give praise and glory and adoration to our God. It should motivate us. Fuel us to worship Him. Now, who does God show mercy to? I'm glad you asked. It's a good question. Who does God show mercy to? Answer? Whoever He wills. Whoever He wills. Remember, God is in charge. He is the sovereign one and He can show mercy to whomever He wills. In fact, Paul reminds us that in in Romans 9.15 where he says this, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has what? Mercy. It depends upon God who has mercy. God can show mercy to whomever He wants to show mercy mercy what does this tell us about God's mercy can we earn it we can't we can't earn it not only do we not deserve God's mercy but we can't earn God's mercy either it's a gift a free gift from him That's why Paul tells us in Titus 3.5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, not on the basis of our deeds, 
Not on the basis of anything that we have done. Because what did Paul tell us in Romans chapter 3? No one is good, no, not one. And so he saved us, not on the basis of our deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. God saves whomever He wills to save, and He saves sinners who are deserving and have done nothing, who are undeserving and have done nothing to earn His mercy. But those of us who are here this morning who have been saved, why are we saved? Why have we been saved? Because He extended His mercy to us and He saved us. It's all by His mercy. Notice Peter also tells us of this mercy there in verse 3 that it is great mercy. I love that. He's got to add that in front of Let me tell you about the mercy of God. Let me help to motivate you to worship God. Let me help to fuel your worship and praise of God. It's by His great mercy that you have been saved. It's a great mercy. David says in Psalm 86 and verse 15, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. That word for loving kindness there that David uses in the Hebrew is the word chesed, which can be translated as mercy. His loving kindness or His mercy. David tells us that God is abundant in His hesed mercy. He's abundant in it. Which is exactly what Peter tells us here in verse 3. God's mercy is great and He saved us according to His great mercy. And the very fact that He has shown mercy to us ought to cause our hearts to cry out and praise and worship, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That should be the worship of our heart, the praise of our heart, the adoration of our heart. You see, we don't need to induce some kind of worship through artificial means. We just need to remember that we have been saved by the mercy of God. And that's enough to draw our hearts upward and praise to God. And so we praise God for His mercy. Let me give you a second reason. Reason number two for praising God is because He has saved us. Because He has saved us. Look at the next part of verse 3. Peter tells us there, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be born again. Now, we're going to go over to John chapter 3 in just a moment, but before we look over there, look over at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23. Notice what Peter says there. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23. Peter reminds these persecuted believers 
It says this in verse 23, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. How were you born again? What does Peter say there? Through the living and enduring word of God. Do you realize that no one is saved apart from hearing the message of the gospel? No one is saved apart from hearing the message of the gospel. And I think that this is amazing when we really think about this. You know, there are people who are living right now who have never heard the message of the gospel. Never. One statistic I read from a missions organization said that there are 1.6 billion people who have never heard the gospel. Never heard the good news of Christ. But listen, God made sure that you heard the gospel. God made sure that someone would come to you and proclaim the gospel to you so that you could be saved. Through the living and enduring word of God. So that through that means of hearing the gospel, he would save you. And you were born again when you heard the message. And he took your dead heart and made it alive. He did all the work. He and his sovereignty made sure that somebody would come and preach the gospel to you so that you could hear it and be saved. Have you ever stopped to praise God and thank Him for sending someone to give you the gospel message? Think about who that was in your life. Who was that person to share the gospel with you? You ever thank God? Praise Him for sending that person into your life to share the gospel with you? He made sure that you would hear the message of Christ's redeeming work so that He could save you. He made sure that you heard about the death and resurrection of His Son so that your sin could be paid for and forgiven. And He caused you to be born again. God did all of that. Now, when we read this phrase, born again here, that we see in verse 3, our mind goes to John chapter 3, right? So I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn over to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. This is Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, he was a a ruler of the Jews and a teacher in Israel, and he comes to Jesus by night. And Nicodemus realizes that Jesus has come from God because of all the signs that Jesus had been doing. Notice what Jesus says there in verse 3. 
John chapter 3 and verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Then look down at verse 6. Notice what it says in verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit, that is born again, is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see, the new birth is mysterious. It's mysterious in that it's something that we cannot see in one's heart. The only thing that we can see is the fruit that comes from that changed heart, right? Just like the wind. You can't see the wind, but you can see the results of the wind. All those trees that are in your yard, the wind's going to come through and blow all of those leaves off in a couple months, right? Or like the fence in our neighbor's yard that blew over a few weeks ago. You see the results of the wind. But we didn't see the wind. You just see the results. And you can't see the work that the Spirit is doing in a person's heart. But you can see the fruit that comes from a heart that has been born again. You see, there's, there's a mystery to the new birth that we cannot see. Even in our own hearts, right? We can't see it happening in our own hearts. But we see the results that come from being born again. And we know something has happened. How do we know? Our desires change. All of a sudden, my desires have been changed. Our actions change. I no longer do the things that I used to love doing. And we now love the God that we used to hate. Oh, I never hated God. Before you were saved, you did. Every one of us hated God. No, but I grew up in the church. I didn't hate God. You lived your life in rebellion to Him. You hated God. But when the Spirit did that work in your heart, all of a sudden, now you love Him. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will what? Obey my commandments. All of a sudden, you desire to obey Him out of a heart of love for Him. You desire to obey Him because you love Him. Where before, you had no desire to obey Him. Because you didn't love Him. But your heart's changed. That's the fruit of a heart that has been born again. Our desires change, our actions change, and we now love God. But it's the Spirit who does that work in us. And as I said a few weeks ago, that word born again here in John chapter 3 means to be born from above. It means to be born from above. It's not something that you and I can do. It's something that God does in us. 
fact, back in chapter 1 and verse 13 of John, John says that we are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We weren't born because our will, born again because our will desired it. We were born of God. He did that work in our heart. He changed our heart. And now all of a sudden, my will is to do what? To obey Him, to love Him, to worship Him, to give Him praise. But I wasn't saved because I willed myself to be saved. God had to do that work in my dead heart to awaken it, to make it alive. So now my will desires to obey Him and to love Him and to worship Him. We're born again of God. We weren't given spiritual life because of our own will. But it's all of God. It's His work that He does in our hearts by His mercy. And just like you had nothing to contribute to your physical birth, you have nothing to contribute to your spiritual birth. Nothing. So that no one can boast. Right? Paul tells us. No one's going to be able to stand before God. God, aren't you glad? chose you you contribute nothing to your spiritual birth one commentator says the concept emphasizes that the source of life is outside ourselves and lies wholly with God whose word produces life it's not within us it's outside of us Our hearts were dead and they needed to be made alive by someone who is outside of us. By God. Who sends a messenger to come and preach the gospel to us. So that we could hear it. Hear the living and enduring word of God. And when we hear that message of the gospel, He changes our hearts. He awakens our dead hearts and causes us to be born again. God does it all. Listen, God by His mercy made sure that you would hear the message of the gospel. And that message of the gospel was the means by which He would make you spiritually alive. He gave you the message that you needed to hear and He gave you the life that you so desperately needed when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And that truth ought to cause our hearts to burst forth in praise and worship and adoration of our God. Listen, you don't need artificial means to induce worship in your heart. You need the truth of God's Word. Remembering what He has done to save you and to give you the greatest gift that you could ever receive. A gift that you didn't earn. A gift that you don't deserve. A gift that was given by His mercy. And His mercy alone. 
And as we think about this great salvation that we have been given, our hearts ought to cry out with Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherever we're at, that should be the cry of our heart, the praise of our heart, the worship of our heart. Well, there are three more reasons for giving praise to God when it comes to our salvation, but we'll look at those next week. Will you bow with me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you and we praise you. And we give you glory and honor. And we cry out with Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because you have saved us by your great mercy. Not of anything that we have done. But you chose us from before the foundation of the world. Oh Lord, we thank you. Thank you for that great salvation. That we have eternal life with you. That we have been saved from an eternity in hell. Under your wrath. Lord, forgive us for not worshiping you more. Forgive us for not praising your name more in our lives for this great salvation. But Lord, as we ponder this, as we think about this great truth and what you have done to save us, oh God, may it fuel our hearts to worship you always. That no matter where we are, where we are, or what we're doing. Lord, may our hearts be always worshiping you, praising you, thanking you for what you've done. Father, I pray for anyone who is here this morning who has not received your mercy, who has not been born again. Lord, I pray that they would recognize their need that they would call out to you, beg for your mercy. God, I pray that you would answer that prayer and that you would save them through the blood of your Son who came and died as a perfect sacrifice for our sins and rose again on the third day and who offers eternal life to all who believe. Lord, we pray that you would awaken their dead hearts and that you would grant them eternal life and that you would be glorified in all of it. We thank you for our time this morning in 1 Peter. As those who are here who are believers, Lord, may it motivate us and fuel our passion to worship you. For your glory alone, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.